So Dan, really keen to know, obviously last week we were talking about New Year's resolutions. This is probably the last week we're allowed to because it's the end of January. Have you come up with a better name for them? I haven't managed to solve that one perfectly in the last week, I'm afraid. I've toyed around with a few things, you know, objectives, goals, KPIs, OKRs. It all sounds a little bit corporate, doesn't it? It's like yeah. you're suddenly going to be trying to plug them into a system or something and, you know, getting reviewed six monthly. So, no, afraid I haven't got any bright sparks on that one, I'm afraid. But have you resolved what your resolutions, I'll keep calling them that for now, have you resolved what they are for this year? Yeah, I have done a bit of thinking on that. I mean, I went pretty big last year, 2021. And I said at the very beginning of that year, I set out 40 things I wanted to do in the year I turned 40, <laughs> which was a lot of fun thinking about. But of course, that's just way too ambitious, I realized. I, in the end, the scores on the doors, I managed to do about 60% of them, I think, which is still pretty great. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I know I did do them in a way that doing any of them would, would, would be really good. Interestingly, there's a real pattern to the ones that I succeeded and the ones I didn't mm -hmm. the ones I did succeed were generally the bigger ticket ones I would say so it's kind of like a big one-off holiday with family it was mm -hmm. organizing events for my birthday for Leo's birthday it yeah. was organizing weekends with friends that I hadn't seen in ages yeah being intentional around that so there's quite a lot probably half a dozen kind of really nice weekends and holidays and events I had with family and friends which yeah. is lovely in and of itself so mm -hmm. that was a really good thing to get out of it and the ones that you didn't manage yeah those are some of the more ongoing kind of habit type ones and I was guilty of that thing that I think a lot of people find difficult is just trying to stuff too many so I was like yeah I want to yoga I want to meditate more blah 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 and it was just too many things so so my, my whole philosophy this year is much focus much smaller and just yeah. pick one of those habit things that I think is going to be the really big one. And for me, this year, that's yoga. So I'm trying to make nice. a weekly yoga practice uh, really stick this year. Yeah, It is interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about the kind of big ticket versus smaller things, you can, even at the start of the year, think big ticket item, holiday, seeing friends. You can already feel the excitement that you feel for that one specific event and you want to organize it and you're motivated. Whereas some of those smaller things that are just building habits, you will feel like a better person if you achieve that habit. If you do yoga all the time, you won't have back problems, etc. But each time you go to a yoga class, you're not like, oh my God, I'm so excited to go to this one yoga class because you don't yeah. see the sort of immediate effect. And I've definitely experience this year the difficulty in the big ticket items I was trying to organize a weekend away with the group of friends there's seven or eight of us so not a huge number but we did a doodle poll of every single weekend between the end of March and the end of October and there was not a single weekend that we could all make just for one weekend away so those big ticket that's, items not to be underestimated but yeah I guess, that's that's yeah. tough that's tough that, that, that is really tough but I, I guess you have to be intentional about it otherwise it just won't happen I guess I guess that's the point um, yeah. and they are fun to organize aren't they as well so um good luck with your 2023 weekend I suppose. <laughs> that's, is, is that as you just flip on to the next year in terms of diaries I think we've got no choice yeah. yeah yeah but yeah so yoga so we'll we'll look forward to hearing how that's going how's it gone so far we're, we're uh, well it had a, a little bit of a rocky start my my yoga teacher got covid we did a couple of mm. zoom sessions but that wasn't really the aim of it but i am booked into one well today wednesday evening so hopefully make that make that work and report back on it later excellent yeah look forward to hearing progress yeah great well let's just tee up today's episode quickly because it's a little bit of a departure isn't it from some of the things we normally talk about Mm -hmm. I guess um, a lot of what we do on this podcast is try and you know, cut through the noise, help people understand things better and communicate um, with you know, investors and clients and people that we're trying to talk to, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess 
if you look back over centuries of human evolution, one of the best ways of, of teaching and helping people understand things is to tell a story. You see that through the ages. And really, that that's the focus of today's session. That's exactly it. And I must say, it's probably been one of the biggest learnings I've had over the last decade of my career is how powerful stories are compared to sort of facts and numbers and data. And so I'm really interested to get on with today's conversation. Absolutely. On with the show. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week, we are talking storytelling. And we've got a very special guest joining us all the way from Rhode Island in the US. And that's Stacey Havener. Stacey, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dan and Mary. It's a pleasure. And of course, it's my favorite topic. So I've got lots of coffee and I'm ready to rock. (laughs) Absolutely. Cannot wait to get into the storytelling. (laughs) Stacey, do you want to give the listeners a sense of your role to maybe just set the scene for this episode? Sure. Happy to. So I'll tell you my role to answer your question directly, and then I'll give you a little bit of my backstory since the vibe of this podcast is storytelling. So just brand story perspective. So I'm an entrepreneur in financial services in the investment world. I'm the founder of Havener Capital Partners. We help investment boutiques grow. And we do that by using a sales and marketing blueprint that's raised billions specifically for boutiques. And that's a big difference because there's lots of ways you can try to raise money in this industry. The playbook the bigs use doesn't work for boutiques. And storytelling is one of the main points. So we'll get to that. As far as backstory, though, if you have a framework of storytelling, this is one of my favorites because behind every company, even in financial services, even in investments, there are people, there are humans who have stories. And so my backstory, look, I don't know, maybe some people grew up dreaming of a career in finance. I wasn't one of them. I didn't know where, I mean, maybe I knew where Wall Street was, but I certainly didn't care. I'm a blue collar kid from a working class town who went to the wrong school, got the wrong degree. And somehow, because of soccer, oddly enough, ended up working in finance. And what I would say about that is (laughs) you can only make it up going backwards. You can never connect the dots forward. My high school soccer coach had a day job. He was a billion dollar asset manager. He ran long, small cap US equities. I didn't even know he had another job besides coach, but it turns out that's very real if you're a coach at all. And we stayed in touch. I paid my way through school. My plan was to be a literature professor. He knew I was paying for school, so he offered me a job. He said, come here. You can work here. You can save up money, and then you can go back and pay for grad school and get your PhD. And I never left. Obviously, I'm still in this business because it turns out in an industry full of men who love numbers, there was a place for a girl who loves words. And even though I had no clue what I was doing, and probably because I had no clue what I was doing, it turns out like the stories matter. They matter everywhere and they matter here. And you can raise a lot of money 
by telling stories. And again, I didn't know that. It wasn't like a conscious, oh, I know what to do. It was I fell back on what I knew best and it worked. Like most things in life, it's serendipitous, but I can't imagine anything different than what I have. I feel incredibly grateful. And you've got both of me and Dan grinning very widely because <laughs> You're right. The power of the story, isn't it? You've just told us it your is. backstory and we're gunning for you already. And we haven't even heard all of the content you're going <laughs> to yeah, give us. And I know we're going to talk about that today, but that's exactly it, Mary, because we think no one cares. And in some ways they don't, and we'll get into it and I'll stop blathering on, but they care about themselves. But the reality is they care about themselves, the problems they have, they need a solution. They need a guide. And the only way they can pick the guide is if they know who you are. And so if you're not willing to share that, then you look like everybody else. Then it's all a commodity and who cares? You don't stand out. You blend in and it's all boring and vanilla. And it just, there's no jazz to it. And so we've like told ourselves something and the industry has kind of told us that people don't matter, that performance matters most. And it's just wrong. Couldn't agree more, obviously. I'm not nodding away, partly because we're five minutes in here and the listeners have already received a little masterclass <laughs> in storytelling, I guess, straight away. So yes, we could sort of wrap things up there, but we've got a load more stuff we want to talk about. Before we get into all of that, why don't you tell us just sort of one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your LinkedIn profile or your CV? So I really worked on this one because I try to be pretty uh-huh. authentic and I share a lot. <laughs> so I'm going to give you guys a new one. I grew up going to the Boys and Girls Club after school. And you could sign up for all kinds of classes. And my favorite class that I took was breakdancing. Nice. Now, I can tell you that I am not good at breakdancing at all. <laughs> like, I literally can do this. That's about like the extent of my breakdancing repertoire right there. But I think I took it because I just wanted to hang out and listen to the music and watch the teachers dance because they were sick. And I just sat there hitting play on the boom box and just watching. And I mean, I guess I tried, but I think my love of hip hop and rap started really early because that was the 80s. I was going to say, what era are we talking here? This was the 80s. I guess the boom box thing gave it away a little bit. You <laughs> yeah, on a Spotify yeah. playlist. This is like Roxanne. This is like old school stuff. Super old school. But yeah, breakdancing. But never ask me to breakdance because it will be embarrassing for all. <laughs> <laughs> Dare I ask, was this East Coast hip hop or? Yes, it was East Coast hip hop. Cool. Nice. Excellent. So, I mean, you've just told us yet another story, actually. So we're really rolling through them, which is fantastic. Do you want to maybe just describe the sort of theory behind the work that you do with these boutique managers and why storytelling matters quite so much? Absolutely. So we hinted to this early on that basically, especially in the investment world, the industry for lots of reasons, and if we put ourselves in the shoes of the bigs, we can understand, downplays people. What if your star manager leaves? Your whole empire could crumble. So downplay people, play up performance, play up process. And not that those things aren't important. They are. It's just they aren't the most important thing. And so when we work with managers, what's really interesting, and I'll tie this back to why it's so important for boutiques, but what's really interesting when the clients come to us and we ask them to tell their story, and you can imagine this because you know portfolio managers, they're most comfortable with numbers. Their unique ability is investing in markets, not 
storytelling. So when you ask them, like, tell us your story, like you've made this decision to launch a company, which is no small decision. What was your journey? I mean, they literally, they look like they're going to pass out. (laughs) They go like, why? They don't know how to answer it. They get very uncomfortable. And all they're looking for when they start talking is how do I get to my comfort zone, which is back to the portfolio and back to the markets. And as soon as they touch that area, they're like, boom, they want to dive right in. You're like, oh, time out. Can we rewind back to you and your journey? It takes a lot. It's not natural for most portfolio managers. It's probably not natural for most people to be comfortable sharing their backstory. But again, if we go to that idea of hero and guide, we recognize that the hero of all the stories you tell is the investor. They care about themselves. That's true. The hero is the investor, except for one story, which is your backstory. And if you imagine the movies, because the movies are so much of storytelling, if you think of any movie where there's like a hero and a guide, let's say Hunger Games, Katniss and Hamish. Katniss didn't get a lineup of 10,000 potential guides in the movie. She just got handed Hamish. But in the real world, you have a lineup of 10,000 potential guides. In asset management, there's tons of funds you could pick. So now there's a conscious decision or not conscious, subconscious decision that needs to be made of why am I going to pick you? And that's why this storytelling piece, especially the backstory is so important. And so it's a ton of work to get them comfortable with that vulnerability and with that authenticity. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think I would naturally have had that view when you think of an advisor. So if you think of an individual investor and their financial advisor or a pension scheme trustee and their advisor, you need to have someone that you can work with day to day. So the personality is super, super important. And I think probably most of us in this industry understand that. But when you start talking about an investor and a boutique fund manager, it feels like the connection is so much further removed that it's not quite such an immediate jump to think that the personality is important. So that's really interesting. Well, I love that. And it's honest because I think you're right. And also it's counterintuitive. There's a multi-billion dollar consultant, multifamily office here that the founder is a friend. And he said something that really resonated with me about performance. So he said, the performance isn't for sale. And if you think about that, it's true. It already happened. You can't buy yesterday's performance. So then what are you actually buying? Yeah, you're buying their brain, aren't you really? Yes. You're buying their brain, their values, how they think, how they view things, their conviction, their risk management. And a lot of that is processed, but you're buying them. So it's true and counterintuitive and maybe doesn't matter as much for a big. Because if you think about it, BlackRock doesn't need to go in and be like, okay, so we're going to introduce you to Larry Fink and it's going to be really great. You're going to get to, A, it's never going to happen. B, it doesn't matter. Like it's a machine. They've done a great job of like, I don't even know who works there, maybe everyone. So it's just sort of like everyone and no one. If you're a boutique, you're fighting against the odds and you're appealing to a different type of investor. And we'll talk about this, but BlackRock, they have to appeal to everyone. Their growth is, in order to grow, it's got to be everyone. A boutique doesn't need that, nor will they win if they try to compete in that game. They need someone very specific, an early adopter, 
And those investors care about different things. When you start thinking a lot about stories anyway, it makes so much sense because stories are the way we understand the world from the earliest age. I've got a little boy, 15 months old, and you're just getting into those famous stories. You remember the ones from your childhood. The Hero's Journey is one example, obviously, the oh, classic Star Wars sort My of thing. favorite, so, yeah. So many other stories. And the reason we remember them for decades and decades is partly because it's very connected with how we understand the world and how we transfer information. I suppose when you start thinking like that, it's like, it makes sense why they matter at work. I suppose the question I was trying to get at was, why do you think it's so hard? Why does it not come naturally to people? Why do people find it so uncomfortable when they're asked to tell their story at work? Is it just because if you encountered that person in a social setting, they'd be totally fine telling you the story of their life. It's just that they're in a suit and tie in an office. Or is it something to do with their particular personality? Is it the conventions of the situation they're in, all of those? How would you break that down? I would probably say D all the above on that. And I think vulnerability is really, really scary. And maybe when you're in a social setting, there's less pressure in some weird way. When you're in a professional setting, especially if you think if you're pitching, You've just like amped up the pressure of the situation to like a really high level. And so now you've put yourself in this pressure cooker in an environment you're not really comfortable. What you really want to talk about is sort of investing in portfolios. And now they're asking you to like talk about something else that you don't want to do. And they're asking you to get vulnerable, which is hard for everyone. But you've also been taught, to your point, Dan, that the industry tells you that's not what matters. And there's a great study by my friends at Kaya. I don't know what the acronym stands for. Something about alternative investments. They'll be mad at me for not knowing. But they're awesome. Anyway, they did this phenomenal study of institutional investors and asset managers. And they basically asked, what's most important to you in due diligence? They asked the investors. They asked the investment managers what they thought the investors felt was most important. It's like a Mr. and Mrs. Yes, quiz 100%. Thing. And of course... One of the questions was, when you're weighting quant versus qualitative, what's more important? The investor said qualitative is as important, if not more important, than quant. And what do you think the investment manager said? Quant all the way. All the way. And I was reading, like I did a podcast with them. I had this study. I was like shaking the paper with highlights and hearts. And start, <laughs> because I'm like, that's the problem right there. It's not even that the qualitative is as important, if not more. The problem is the managers have it wrong. And how can two people meet in the middle if one of them thinks something that's totally opposite of what the other actually wants? And just to try and put myself in the shoes of one of those managers who thinks it's all about quant and also wants to hide behind the numbers because they're not comfortable. How do you tell a story where you're comfortable or confident, and maybe you just can't be, that every relevant person will like your story. So for example, when you gave us your backstory, I was really interested that you said you went to the wrong university. <laughs> yeah. What counts as the wrong university? There's the traditional finance path, which I'm sure in the US and in the UK, we can probably guess on one hand the number of universities that would be on the right list. But that's not really the world we should be living in anymore. But how do you tell that story? So if you are a manager who went to Oxbridge or you're a manager who really didn't go to Oxbridge, you're going to put a slightly different spin on your story. How do you do that so that you're appealing to the broadest audience that you can? Such a good question. And also, I'm going to say you don't. So the exact opposite of what you just said, which is why it's scary, is where you have to lean into. 
the key thing you said there, Mary, that I'm like, yes, Mary, this is great because this is how people think is I need to appeal to the broadest set of prospects possible. And that needs to be flipped. What if you didn't do that? What if you tried to appeal to the narrowest amount of investors possible? How would your story change? It would probably change a lot. Because if I'm trying to appeal to everyone, I'm going to dull all my edges. I'm going to just smooth it out and blend it in so that I can try to appeal to everyone. But the reality is when you do that, you don't appeal to anybody at all because you're not giving them something to hang on to. So let's play it out. And then I'll come back to your university question. If I went into a meeting and I said, you know what? I believe in top down and bottom up. I believe in (laughs) passive and active, concentrated and really diversified. Equities and bonds, long and short, options. You're like, what the hell are you? (laughs) What do you do? Well, then you are the market and you're BlackRock, aren't you? You're BlackRock. You're like, I have everything. I literally have everything. I believe in everything, which means I actually am convicted to nothing. And so what happens if you're brave enough to attract and repel is that your story actually will hit with someone. And that's the trick. So in the instance of university, and so in my story, when I say I went to the wrong school, people who went to Harvard may or may not like that. I don't really care. Because the odds are there potentially are a lot of other things that we might not jive. And I'm not trying to be everyone's cup of tea. I'm much happier being somebody's shot of whiskey. (laughs) And so I have to be brave enough to repel. I have to have the courage to be disliked. That takes real bravery, I think, actually, because I've thought a lot about this. And one of the reasons it takes bravery is because if you do that and fail, your colleagues will blame you for doing that. Whereas if you don't do that, and you fail, no one really blames you because you didn't really do anything that could annoy anyone. So I think that's the real tension there is that other, your colleagues and your peers, you're taking a huge risk doing that because in the instances of failure, your colleagues and your peers will pin that on you. Whereas in the success, it won't be quite so obvious that that's what did it. I think, is that what you find as well? 100%. I mean, that is it. Like that's where all that vulnerability becomes a challenge. And if you think about even here we are, we're the boutique asset manager and we're like, I'm trying to raise money and I don't know what to do. And I feel like I need to apply to everyone. So it's like, it's math. If I appeal to everybody and I only get a small percentage that hit, boom, I've got my whatever I'm trying to raise. And it doesn't work that way because you actually don't appeal to anyone. So it's just a fool's errand. And you don't get sticky money either, I guess, with that approach. No, because no one's buying you for the right reason. And so... If you think about the adoption curve, which typically is applied to technology, innovators, early adopters, early majority, and then who cares in my mind, but okay, (laughs) there's a whole back half of that curve. If you plotted institutional investors on that curve, I think most of us would probably plot them pretty similarly. You're not going to put consultants and innovators that sort of like doesn't go. They do a lot of what you just said, Dan. They don't want to be wrong. They don't want to be fired. So they're not going to take a flyer on some breakaway manager, even if they have a great pedigree, because what if they're wrong? Much safer to pick a BlackRock. No one's going to fault them for that. It is really interesting 
I've been involved for, well, I guess about a decade in equity manager research. And you research the big houses and you all know what to expect. Sometimes it's an interesting catch up with the rest of the team afterwards. And sometimes it's just a bit like, well, we knew that fund already, so not much interesting. The ones where you get a lot of interest and debate is Marmite managers, which actually just everything you've said today, I'm sort of thinking there's a couple in mind where I'm like, yeah, actually, when I met that manager, they weren't trying to please everyone and they were just themselves and they were pretty strong and punchy with some of the things they said. But you remember it. You do. You love it or you hate it. But if you love it, you're going to stick with them. Exactly right. And I think what's interesting, I mean, I'm very much into the bigs versus boutiques and I think, I hope it's pretty clear which side I'm on. But that's not to say that anything is right or wrong. There is a place for BlackRock. There's a place for passive. There's a place for everything. I think if you're a boutique, you have to realize where's your place. Are they really going to hire a boutique for like large cap U.S. equity exposure? I mean, are they really even going to hire active for that? Where do you actually add value? What problem are you solving? If the investors say, yes, we still believe in active management. And when we believe in it, we want high conviction. We want alpha generation. We want differentiation. We want low portfolio crossover. We want a high active share. We want all these things. So that's where you're going to shine. You have to recognize that and lean into that because all of those things point to being specific a meaningful specific, not a wandering generality. And it's scary to do, but I think that's what we've seen works with boutiques. So in terms of giving us a blueprint for a good story, we've got use specifics and don't be afraid to show your personality and don't hide away from that. Are there any other sort of key components to a good story? So let's stay with backstory because I think that's probably the most challenging one. I mean, there's a bunch of stories you can tell. Some of them are easier to get your arms around, but I think the place where people really struggle is the backstory, sort of the founder's story. And so let's go back to the movies again. So Dan, you mentioned the hero's journey. And in general, I would say, at least for me, I get tons of inspo outside of our industry. As a sales and marketing person, I don't get tons of inspo like, oh, let's see what so-and-so did. Oh, what a fabulous idea. Because it's just like we're not known for sales and marketing in the investment world. But so if you go outside of our little corner, you can find a lot of cool things. And certainly in movies. So like Campbell's whole storytelling thing, which all the screenwriters use. Those classic story arcs apply to any story, not just movies. And in general, there's lots of different frameworks for how to write a good story. Some have five phases, some have seven, some have 12. I'm going to just break it down to three. Super simple, okay? There's some ordinary world that you're in, some conflict, opposing force, something happens, and you emerge changed. That's basically what needs to happen. I was here, this thing happened, and now I'm over here. That arc is essentially what every good story has. And if you play that out, so let's take like a breakaway scenario, which is one of our favorites. So you have a portfolio manager who works for a big, let's say, maybe they've been there a long time. They've seen the growth. They've been a portfolio manager on a strategy that the assets have exploded. The performance has deteriorated. We all know this. That's the ordinary world. It gets to the point that that portfolio manager has had it. The culture has changed. The red tape has changed. The alpha generation is harder because there's too much money. 
all of these conflicts are happening and that portfolio manager loses it and it says, I'm out and I'm going to start a new boutique and we're going to do it differently. That story, those three things, resonates with early adopters almost every time. Doesn't mean you're going to win every deal because again, you have to then say like, well, what's the problem you actually solve? But from a story perspective, that breakaway story is really powerful. And you can tell it in such a way that it's not like you're bashing where you were. You're just saying something changed. Typically, that portfolio manager would say, it's most important for me to be an asset manager and generate alpha for my clients, not an asset gatherer. It was a great place. I'm taking a lot of awesome things with me, but I believe in something different. So I hope that helps. Like that's kind of the framework, just three things that you need and you need the conflict. If you don't have the conflict, it's not a great story. I think Mary, you said something like, I'm already cheering for you. That's it. You want the movie version. You want to be like, where's the popcorn? Like I'm cheering for this person. That's the classic sort of Star Wars story, isn't it? Luke Skywalker is the hero's journey with Yoda as the the sort of companion or something. I remember ages ago, one moment when this really hit home for me was I thought I'd identified this amazingly insightful similarity between two movies. I think it was The Fast and the Furious and Point Break or something. They have a very similar storyline to both of them. And I was saying this to someone, I think, and I'd made this incredibly insightful point. And they were like, yeah, but it's just a hero's journey, isn't it? And I was just like, <laughs> what? Like mind you're blown. talking this language, like exactly. It was mind blown. It was a mind blown emoji. And when I started reading about it, I was like, oh my God, yeah, it is. And actually when I think about it, that's like every movie. And I obviously felt so stupid after that because it's like, well, yeah, of course, they're telling the same story again and again. But yeah, that was my moment of realization. On that's that. it. So pro tip, if you're struggling with this, if you're saying like, okay, I want to work on my story and you're struggling with it, because we've had some managers where we know their story, we know it's good, and we ask them to tell it, and they can't. And we're like, come on, I can tell your story. You have to get there. <laughs> a good unlock is to ask them about their mentor. So when you ask someone about their mentor, what happens is the vulnerability changes. Because they're like, oh, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about this person that I hold in incredibly high regard. But actually, you are talking about yourself. You just don't realize it. So the mentor thing or someone that inspired them can sometimes get that creativity and storytelling going. There are increasing numbers of boutique managers. So clearly, an investor looking for a boutique type manager has thousands of choices these days. And the breakaway story that you mentioned, it's probably sits in, I don't know what the proportion is, but a high proportion of those boutique managers because... You want someone who's experienced and that's a good way for them to have become experienced. But then it feels like their conflict could be the same across hundreds of managers. So how do they then tell their stories differently? Is it just literally applying their own actual personality to that storytelling? That's the way that they come across differently. Well, a couple things. So, I mean, let's go back to Dan. So no matter how many times Dan watches a movie that has the hero's journey, he's probably going to be like, this movie's amazing. Like, <laughs> their storytelling is, like, so good. And then his friends would be like, dude, again, hero's journey, <laughs> the same story. So it just goes to show you that, like, it's just that arc. Even if works. they tried to tell it exactly the same, they wouldn't. It hits different, doesn't it? Every time. It hits different. And there's going to be nuances. And I think it's probably a good setup to some of the other stories because, again, like the backstory is the one where you're the hero because you want them to pick you as the guide. 
But in all the other ones, you're solidly, I mean, you're always the guide, but like the other stories is more about the investor as the hero. So when you tell some of those, now you're going to start getting more differentiation because if I'm going to tell a job story, which is like a role in the portfolio story, what problem am I solving? Everyone's going to solve a slightly different problem. Now I've got even more differentiation. Or if I'm a large cap growth manager, doesn't sound that exciting. We have this kind of a story on our platform. Differentiation. So again, coming out as a changed person with a changed business model, they had done work to realize that when they looked back at their long tenure of managing at this particular firm, the names that did the best that were most successful for them had some sort of innovation embedded in their story as a company. And so that was the twist. It's like, we're like them, but different because we're leaning in on innovation. And that's where you can start getting the differentiation. I was wanting to pick up on a really interesting point you just made there, which is making the audience the hero of the story. And one mistake I have seen among people who otherwise tell quite good stories, which is obviously a good start. But one mistake I've often seen they make is they big themselves up as the hero too much. I think it's a classic pitfall. And that can obviously also be a bit of a turnoff. It kind of starts well. It's like, okay, promising. And then you just kind of see the turnoff when they're putting themselves on the pedestal. I think that is a difficult switch to pivot to the way of making the audience the hero. Any tips? I love that. And it's so true because again, we're taught when we're pitching, stand and deliver. How much time do I have? Do I have 90 set? What's my pitch? How much time am I pitching? And then you just get up and like throw up on the person of like <laughs> every stat and cool thing you can think of saying about yourself because you're like, I want to win. It's like a pageant, right? Wrong. Like sit down and listen. So when we do like meeting coaching, the first story that's told is not the founder's backstory. In fact, the first thing that we recommend you do is ask a question, not you talk. You ask them. And now, again, this doesn't always work, but we're focused right now on boutiques talking to early adopters, okay? You're standing in front of like a committee of consultants <laughs> talking out loud. Well, that's everyone's backstory. Like, so, <laughs> but they're over here. They're farther down the curve. So you're in this meeting. And if you ask the person tell me a little bit about your firm and you and sort of like, who do you serve and kind of get them telling their story. A lot of things happen. First of all, people like to talk about themselves. So they all of a sudden start thinking the meeting's great because they're talking. And you, as the person who's there, quote, pitching, pick up a ton of information a ton of places where you can connect as humans, a ton around what's the actual problem they're trying to solve, what don't they like about the current strategy they're using, or when people talk, I mean, they're just going to talk. And then when they're done is when you say, well, would it be helpful for me to share a little bit about my backstory and why I started the company and then we can get take it from there and go into process or whatever else. And the person's going to go, yeah, that actually would be great. So I think that's the problem, Dan, is if you come in expecting that like it's your floor and it's about you, you're pitching and you only have a certain amount of time to do it, you lose the ability to actually connect because you've lost who is the hero. There can only be one. Can we pivot slightly at that point? Because it's been ages going on that. But part of the way you and I got in touch was another podcast you were on. And you did something on that podcast that I just thought was brilliant. (laughs) 
you talked about the best ever email subject lines and the best ever voicemail. It was just great. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your theory of the best ever email subject line. Did I do the worst? I usually start with the worst. Okay, start with the worst. Yeah, yeah. Then you can contrast it. So here's the worst. And this is what most people do. So the question we always have to ask ourselves is, what is the job of whatever it is I'm doing? What do you want to have happen? So if I call you, what do I want you to do? Pick up I get phone. your voice now. What do I want you to do? Well, I'll call you back, presumably. Yeah. Phone you back. But I want you to call me back. So here's all the things that go wrong in this. I want you to call me back. So here's what I do. First of all, I go way too wordy and long on who I am. So I go, hi, Mary, it's Stacy Havener calling from Havener Capital Partners, LLC in Newport, Rhode Island and blah, 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 blah. And the person's like, what? I don't even know. Really. Like you would never leave that beginning intro if you were calling your friend. So that's the first thing. No one knows your company. They don't need your last name. They don't need if you're an LLC or a limit, like just stop that. Okay. You're just a person. The second mistake we make when we leave a voicemail is we tell them what we want to tell them on the voicemail. And then we say, call me back. And if I'm the person receiving the information, I'm like, why? Why am I going to call you back? Now you just told me I'm good. (laughs) Yeah. Very good point. So it's like, I wanted to give you an update on the voicemail and then you go give me a call and I can fill you in and you're like to call you back <laughs> so the trick if what you want is a call back is to leave enough information that they want to call you back so pretend this happens I call you up I say Mary it's Stacy we met however we met I've got something really cool to share with you call me back that's all I say do you want to know what it is? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, don't even know, like, really what the heck, what category are we in? I don't know what category we're in. Cool what? Cool how? But human nature is, if you have something cool, of course I want to know what it is. So if I had a new client, I could call someone and leave a voicemail and explain who the boutique is on the voicemail. Or I could say, Mary, it's Stacy. You know what we're all about. We've got a new client. It's a super cool story. Call me back. You're going to call me back? Yeah. Same thing with email. What's the goal of the email subject line? The subject line. Get you to read the email. Get you to open the email. So why on earth would the subject line that you choose be checking in? (laughs) It's so awful. It says nothing. It's about you or like update from. Not fun. So. Not that you would do this, but the subject line has to have something different, something compelling to get you to open. You could use that same cool thing, like cool new breakaway, dot, dot, dot. I'm probably going to open. All of that, to me, ties back to behavioral because we spend all this time over-engineering what we're going to say and like perfecting it and practicing it and all that stuff, but we forget to put ourselves in the shoes of the other person as a human and what makes them tick. They're curious. FOMO's real. All the things that go into behavioral, all the biases that you carry are biases for a reason. And if you ignore them, you're missing a huge opportunity that really at its core is kind of simple. It's a really good point because a lot of people might 
sort of winced slightly at the thought of writing a business email that said, this is cool. <laughs> if you were copywriting it, if, so if you were copy editing it for your colleague, you might say, well, hang on, we need to be a bit more precise. Do we need to say this is strategically, potentially quite interesting, something like that. So that's how the emails end up getting written. It's like, this, it's awful as strategically, potentially journey could be kind of thing. Oh my gosh, totally. And also how many emails do you receive from an asset manager where literally it's a book? And there's paragraphs about who they are, like the quote intro email. Those are the worst. No one has time to read that. So again, human beings, email sucks. No one is psyched to go into their inbox and read. That's not a fun thing for anybody. So if you're going to send a novel, oh, and how about this one? Another thing that blows my mind. I'm like, I could go on for days. <laughs> You're like, this is overkill. We don't need everything. Okay, so I send you an email. I'm a manager. I attach every single piece of collateral that I have. I have like 10 attachments. I'm like, here's the fact sheet, the pitch book, commentary, DQ. I attach it all. First of all, you're like, too much. Also now, by the way, salesperson, you have nothing left. You have literally played, you just threw your cards on the table. You're like playing it and you just went, oh, there they are, everything. You've got no card. There's no like, hey, nice to meet you, here's this. With the hope that whatever this is gets them to say, you know, I'd like to see the next thing. So there's all this urgency that kind of gets us to act desperate. Like you're not going to close a deal on the first email. You don't have to put every single attachment that you've created. I'll stop. <laughs> I like it. I couldn't agree more. I personally think that writing good emails is a sort of massively underrated skill in the workplace. Unfortunately, it doesn't get rewarded. It doesn't really get taught. It doesn't get cleaned up. But I try and be a bit thoughtful about them. But I think I'm still pretty average at it, to be honest. So I love the idea of thinking more carefully about emails and throwing in that this is cool a little bit more often than maybe we would do now. Like to be a person, because that's what you would say, right? The way you would talk. That's a really good tip, which probably brings us, I think, as we start to close the episode, Stacey, you've given us so many little nuggets and tips. What would the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away be? I think probably it would be cliche for me to just be like, practice your stories, even though that's what I want to say. But I think I would go back to that Kaya study. There's a quote from my friend, John Bowman, who works there. And I tease him that I'm going to like put it on my wall. But the quote was, culture eats sharp ratio for breakfast. So it's a little riff on a pretty well-known quote. And I think that's what I'd want people to take away. That even though you feel like quantitative is king, qualitative might be queen. And if you ignore it, you do so at your peril. And the key to landing the culture point is the story, because I feel like more and more firms are realizing that culture is important, but they try and make that point by saying, we have a great culture. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> our culture is so damn good. You wouldn't believe how good our culture is. That's Culturally, right. we're brilliant. And these are our cultural principles and our strategic cultural steering group has a great strategy sort of thing. And that's kind of missing the point, isn't it? I guess. It is missing the point. Exactly. It's the highest level, but it's like, show me, don't tell me. And you could say it, but make it real for me. Paint a picture for me with your words. Like, I can't come to your office, let's say. I can't maybe meet your team, especially now. And so how are you going to 
tell that part? How are you going to show it to me with words? How are you going to make me feel like I just want to be your partner? And I'll figure out what the strategy is or how to use it or I'll rationalize it. Because again, like the heart buys first, the mind is going to rationalize that decision. And we sell to the mind and that's a miss because they're not here yet. That's so true. Stacey, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investment generally? I do think it's the people. And I think that that gets lost. Like the bigger the firm gets, the more the business risk is to have your people be a big part of the story. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's all about. Humans would probably never be able to admit or unpack what actually is happening in their decision making. They would tell you all the reasons. And certainly at an investment committee meeting, they would tell you all the reasons why this is going to go in the portfolio. But are they really the reasons? And are the reasons more about people than maybe we all think? And it's like you said, the heart makes a decision and then the head justifies it. So the heart says, I want them. And then the head says, well, they tick these boxes. So that's why I'm making that decision. Exactly. Nice. And Stacey, before we let you go, do you have any recommendations for the listeners? I jotted a list, of course, as somebody who loves books and, and stories, I was like, oh man. So for authenticity and vulnerability, anything by Brene Brown. And maybe it's going to be uncomfortable for some people, but that's part of it, right? That's what vulnerability is. Anything by Brene Brown. Story Brand by Donald Miller is a great book. Daniel Crosby for All Things Behavioral. He will make you think and sort of say simple things that blow your mind about human behavior. And also Robert Cialdini, who does a whole bunch of work on influence. He doesn't have a podcast per se, but if you Google him, you can find podcasts where he's been a guest and he's got some great books. So those would be some things I'd throw That's the author of Persuasion, isn't it? Cialdini? Yeah. Yeah. He's been on a few podcasts recently. I think he did a new version of his book last year or something. Yeah, he added a seventh factor. That's a great book. And it's very human behavior as well. Cool. Fantastic. Great. We'll get all those links in the show notes doc so listeners can check those out. Stacey, you hang out on LinkedIn, don't you, quite a lot? You post content there? I do. That's my platform of choice. So come and hang out with me on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Stacey Havener. I'm horrible at DMs, so don't take offense. I read them and then I write you back in my head. And so, so, but I try to post, if not every day, multiple days a week. I do walk and talk videos, which are totally raw and unedited. (laughs) And so it gives you some inspiration and courage to don't overthink it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Sometimes imperfect is really where connection happens. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just fantastic to speak to someone who uses LinkedIn as a primary kind of content platform. Love that idea. And then Stacey is a great follow on LinkedIn, by the way. So hopefully our listeners will reach out and connect and get some ideas. Awesome. Stacey, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. Oh gosh, thank you both for having me. Anytime you want to talk stories, please let me know. I am here for it. I'm here for you. We might just get in touch. Thank you, Stacey. (laughs) Okay. That's it this week from us on Investment Uncut, but join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.